Hey, I do have to share a story with you right quick. Um, this is a good one. It's not like a funny one. This is powerful. Uh, going back probably several months ago, we had a young man. I finally got to meet a young man out in the lobby um, after a service one day. And his dad had just been baptized. And um, I could tell the, the young man begrudgingly wanted to be here. Uh, and so as a, he introduces himself in the lobby to me before the service, he had his, his beats on. He had his headset on. And so that's how he introduced himself to me. And so I watched him come into the room and I watched for the entire service. He sat with his headphones on. I was like, man, everybody's probably jealous of you because they wish they had what you had right now. But what was amazing is I love to watch when God begins to peel back the layers of people's heart because he came back the next week, headset on, came back the next week and I noticed something a little bit different. He sat down right here in the middle and he took one of the earpieces off. Left one, but had the other one. Then the next week I watch he comes in and he has them around his neck now. And I'm here to tell you this morning that that young man surrendered his heart and his life to Christ right here today. But what is so powerful is you watched the Spirit of God draw him to salvation over the last two months. Man, there's power in the Word of God. And so he'll be getting baptized following his daddy, um, who was baptized just a few weeks ago. So it's just such an encouraging, a great. And what's awesome is I was in, you know me, I'm a busybody. I like to talk, so I love being in the lobby, talking to people. And the Lord said, uh, you stay put this morning. I said, huh? I want to go out there and talk to everybody. And the Lord said, nope, stay put. And so I told everybody, I said, look, I'm normally in the lobby talking and shaking hands and hugging necks and well, COVID, we're air five and whatever you want to call it. And he said, no, you stay put. And the moment we dismissed this morning, that young man made a beeline. And so, man, I was so thankful to hear from the Lord and just to watch this young man give his heart and his life to Christ. Um, but I want to start out this morning by kind of painting the picture of today. You know, I was in student ministry for, I, I really kind of lose track, it was 10 to 12 years. And I know one of the, you know, being in student ministry itself was a very difficult task. You know, you talk with teenagers about everything, right? You talk to them about their parental problems. You talk to them about sexual issues. You talk to them about relational issues. You have to walk with them through every breakup. Oh my gosh disgusting. I mean, sixth and seventh graders, they know that this is the one. This is the one. <laughs> anyway, Greg. <laughs> but one of the most daunting things in student ministry was when I would stand on a Wednesday night and realize that I had to try to, to share from God's word, to try to share the truth and reach everybody from an 11-year-old all the way to a sometimes 19 year old. And so obviously because of their age, there was a, a big difference in an 11 year old and a 19 year old. The 11 year olds, the kid, I've never understood this. Sixth graders, they always wanna sit on the front row on a Wednesday night. And they sit there the entire time, they talk, they pick their nose, 
And so I've got the little nose picker sitting right here that's always sitting right here in front of me. It's so distracting. But then on the back row, you've got the 19-year-old young man with his arm around his forever, right? And they're praying together. <laughs> we know that ain't what happened. So I'm sitting here trying to go, God, how in the world do I share that I can reach the booger picker? And Wes, it actually was, used to be you. Um, it was, <laughs> I'm just kidding, Wes. But I'm going, God, how do we share something that can influence this kid, but then influence the kids who are making out on the back row. And so that was always just a, a battle and a struggle to figure out how in the world that we could do that in such a way that we could see um, lives change for the gospel. And, and you'll understand why I'm sharing that in just a minute. But this week, I, you know, we were supposed to be reading in 1 John chapter three, and I kind of threw a kink in that last week, and I said, no, we're going back to chapter two again. So I'll just go ahead and tell you, you will be in chapter three next week, okay? We end chapter, tw or chapter two today. But when I started reading in chapter two again um, this week, the Lord laid on our hearts where to start. And where we're gonna start today, you'll find it, that it is very similar to the way John started out chapter two and what we shared last week. But look with me in, cha in chapter two, verse 12 of 1 John. Some of you, it may be your first time here and you're kind of trying to get caught up. All we're doing as a church family is we're reading through the book of 1 John. You can go on our website and it'll give you the reading plan. Um, and then on Sunday mornings, we'll be sharing um, from the word of God, whatever the Lord lays on my heart to share. But if you look at verse 12, you'll see how he starts it out and how closely it related to verse one that we shared. Verse 12, he says, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. And so we, we looked at that phrase last week, little children. And so what we know is this, this phrase of little children, it is encompassing all of the believers. It is putting all of the believers in one basket and that little children, he's talking to specifically the church. He's talking to all of those who have prayed to receive Christ and who have surrendered their heart and their life to the Lord. But what I love is how he simply tells us what qualifies them and also it qualifies us to be the little children is he says, oh, little children, because your sins are forgiven. So that's very important to understand again that the reason that we are qualified as followers of Jesus Christ, the, we, the reason that we are the church is not because we've perfected this thing, Christianity, not because we don't make mistakes anymore, not because we read our Bible so many hours of the week, not because we pray so many times of the week, but the reason that we are believers in Jesus Christ, the reason that we are saved by the grace of God is simply because our sins are forgiven because of the blood of the lamb. That is why we are qualified to be the believers of the church, is that we have been forgiven by the grace of God. And we read that in, first, in chapter one, verse nine. We, say, we read it there, he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, man, there's so much confidence in that phrase, all unrighteousness, because what we know that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that he forgives us of all of our past sin, he forgives us of all of our present sin, and he also forgives us of all our future sin, that he takes care of it all. And that's where the freedom we find as believers comes from. 
And so what's interesting about this, this section, if you would, he encompasses all of the believers by calling us little children. But then he breaks the, the, the big C church, all of the believers into three subgroups, if you would. And that's what I want you to look at. Look at verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14, he says this, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you children. Notice it doesn't say little children. It says children because you know the father. Verse 14, and I have written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So what we read here is what scholars believe. We see father, we see young men, and we see the word child. And so what scholars believe is that while John pitched the whole thing to the little children, which was encompassing of the whole, all of the believers, when he talks about fathers, when he talks about young men, and when he talks about the child, scholars believe that he's talking about where they're at in their spiritual journey in their relationship with Jesus Christ, in their following of Jesus Christ. The, fa the, the fathers would have been those who have been following Jesus for years probably following Jesus for much longer than the others had even been alive. Then it goes on to the young men. Scholars believe that the young men were those who were growing in their faith, who, who were constantly striving, to, constantly in the word, and they were growing in their knowledge of God. But then you had the child who was one of those who have just been born again. And basically their knowledge of their relationship with God is all they know right now is that they're a child of God. They don't know a whole lot about it. They don't know all of the details. They don't know the New Testament from front to back, but all they know is that they have been saved by the grace of God. And so now I think you kind of see the reason I shared that, that story of a struggle as a student pastor, because you have John here, he's having to share the truth of God's word to where he can relate to a, a man or a woman who's been following Christ for years, maybe the entirety of their life. Then he's having to also share truth that he can influence a child who knows nothing more than I'm a, a blood-bought again believer. So how in the world can he, he kind of address all of those, no matter where they're at in their journey with Christ. And so the, the easiest way to do that is just simplicity. And when we looked in 1 John chapter one last week, man, I don't get any simpler than what we read last week. We read last week that as, as the body of Christ, as the believers, what John commanded us to do in response to understanding the love of God is we love others. Our response to God is we love others because we understand the love that he had for us. And you know, we ended last week walking through 1 Corinthians 13 of love is patient, love is kind. And we went through the whole list and, and I don't know about you, but it was revealed to me all of the areas that I'm absolutely terrible at loving people. But the beauty of that is what we also read is that's the very way that our heavenly father loves us. He loves us with no failure. And so in response to understanding such a love as that, we respond by loving other people because we see the love that the Father has for us. And so now this week, he's gonna take another very simple principle 
And last week he told us what we are to love, but this week he simply looks at what he's telling us not to love and how we're not supposed to love this in response to understanding God's love. Again, remember, everything that we do is in response to God's love of understanding it. It's not so that we can earn God's love. It's an impossibility for us to make God love us more than he already does. And so what John is instructing them to do is he says, in response to God's love, you love other people. But now he's gonna say today, in response to God's love, I'm gonna tell you what not to love. And so I want us to look at that right quick. And I'll go ahead and tell you, look, this isn't a whole lot of fun, okay? Looking at what God is telling us, what John is telling us not to love is not a lot of fun because I know Brian. And there are some things in this world that Brian loves that Brian has no business loving because I'm not responding to the love of the Father because of that. And so look, God's gonna, my prayer has been that the Holy Spirit's gonna reveal to you areas of your life today that are completely contrary to the word of God. Okay, so here we go. I want you to look at verse 15. Verse 15, he just simply tells us what not to love. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's kind of a right jab, right to the jaw. But if we're not careful, we can read that verse on the surface. We can read it on the surface of what it reads, and and it may could cause a little confusion. Because one of the, probably the most famous Bible verse in all of the scripture is John 3, 16. For God so loved. For God so loved. Praise the lamb. Y'all, some, I heard some of you flipping the Bible verses right quick. Y'all didn't, y'all forgot that one. Dear Lord. But anyway, so here's. We read that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But now we just read that John says that we as the church are not to love the world. So something's missing. What in the world? And and so what we have to understand is the context of what John is talking about. Because when we look at the word world in our English language, it can mean several different things. Okay. And so when we think of world, You may think to God's creation. You may think to the rainbows, to the sunsets, to the sunrises, to the to the waterfalls, to all of those things. And I don't I can I look at a lot of your Instagrams. And if that's what John is saying, that there's a lot of you that there's proof that the love of the father is not in you because you post pictures of like waterfalls and rainbows all the time because you love the creation. You love the world. And so evidently, that's not what John is talking about. He's not talking about it's wrong for us to love the world, to love God's creation. But then there's also, when we think of the world, there's the human world, which in context is what we read in First John, or in John chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world. It means that God so loved the people of the world. He so loved the humans of the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so when we look at that now, so we've got nature We've got the human beings of the world. So obviously John is not wanting us not to love people because last week we already told us to love people. We obviously know that nothing's wrong with loving God's creation. 
So what in the world is John talking about? Y'all didn't get it either. What in the world is John talking? Somebody flip, let me try it one more time. What in the world is John talking about? My wife didn't laugh either the first service. So anyway, I I told myself I was gonna scratch that one from the first service and I didn't because I thought y'all were smarter than that. (sighs) So what in the world is John talking about here? When we look at the world, when we look at the literal translation, we go back to the Greek word. It comes from the word cosmos. And so I want you to hear what that translates as, what the definition is. So the world in this context is an organized system led by evil that is in opposition to the word of God. Short of the long, what, what that word world means here is anything in the world or anything of the world that leaves God out. Pretty simple. So anything that is in the world or that is of the world that leaves God out of it, this is what we are called not to love. We are called not to love anything that doesn't have something to do with God. But you know that that's exactly what the enemy wants from you. That's exactly what the enemy wants from me. He wants us to love the things of this world because he wants us to love things that God has nothing to do with. And so what we're gonna see right now is how the enemy's going to work in your life, how the enemy's going to work in my life to try to help us fall in love with the things of this world. Because remember, Satan's goal is not that we all worship him, He just doesn't want us to worship God. That's it. So if he can get us to love anything other than God, he's winning that battle. And so what we're gonna look at is John talks about three areas of weakness for a believer and a lost person. So I want you to look with me down in verse 16. Verse 16, he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That sums up all areas of how the enemy wants you and I to fall. This is the tools that he is going to use in your life and my life to help us, to want us, to to birth in us a love for this world. And remember, A love for this world is anything that leaves God out. And so, you know, we could really stop right now. We could really stop right now and we recognize the the tools of the enemy. We've recognized how the enemy wants us to fall. We've recognized how he knows our areas of weakness. But I believe that it's an imperative for all of us not just to identify the problem, but we as the church, we've got to learn to attack the problem. We've got to learn what it means to fight it, what it means to stand against it, and what it means not to waver in who we are as the church. I think we can all agree 
The church has gotten in a bad place. And when I say the church, I'm talking the believers, the body of Christ. We've gotten in a bad place where we don't stand against what God opposes. A lot of times we stand with it. A lot of times we turn a deaf ear to it. And the hardest part for the church is we've gotten to a place where we don't say anything. You do understand that silence is agreement in our culture. When we don't stand, we might as well be standing in agreement with. And so I know last week, the men's breakfast, um, and maybe you're new here, um, the men meet every other Saturday morning out here in the atrium for donuts or Chick-fil-A. And, but last week, John challenged us with how we as fathers, how we as the family, how we as churches, we've become desensitized to things that are against the Lord. We've become desensitized to worldly things. We've become numb to things that oppose God because we see it every day. It's every time we turn the TV on. It's every TV show that we watch now. And you know what we continue to do? We overlook it. And the reason I can say we overlook it is because I do. I can make an excuse for everything I watch on TV. I can make an excuse for all of it. Well, I'm just gonna overlook that one thought. I'm gonna overlook that one scenario because man, the storyline in this is unbelievable. But we become desensitized to the things of this world that oppose the word of God. We've become numb to it. And so in reading this, I noticed that John says, look, the way the enemy's gonna attack you is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And so I was reading that, and as I recognized all of those areas that I've already figured out, man, man, I'm weak there, I'm weak there, I'm weak there, I'm weak there, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit laid on my heart that a message that I've preached, I, don't, I really don't know how long ago it was, but it was when the enemy, when Satan, when the devil took Jesus into the wilderness and tempted him. He tempted him three times. And you guessed it. Guess what three areas he tempted Jesus in. Guess what tools he used in Jesus' life to try to get Jesus to fall in to love the things of this world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. All three things that John has just made us aware of. And so I know used to, I used to love coaching. And because of my temper, the Lord removed me because I got teed up about every third game and that just was not good when you would stand on Wednesday night to try to preach to teenagers and then you got teed up the night before. But I begin to look and, you know, as a coach, you always, if you watch game film or you watch previous games as you're preparing to play against another team, you always want to take what the other team did that worked to beat the team you're about to play. And so you take bits and pieces and you put together a game plan in order to battle the one that you're about to come up against. So in my simplicity of my thinking, I thought, well, man, Jesus won the battle. So why wouldn't we look at how he did it? Let's look and see how Jesus overcame the enemy. Let's look and see how Jesus fought off the temptation and the lure of Satan. 
So I want you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter four. And we're gonna look very quickly at all three areas in which we see how the enemy tempted say, or the enemy tempted Jesus and how we can relate that to that's the very same way that he tempts us. So I want you to look with me, starting in verse one through three, and we're just gonna walk through these real quickly. He says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So right here, we see the lust of the flesh. Jesus has just came out of a fast for 40 days and 40 nights. I don't know about you, if you've ever fasted, but when you are coming out of a fast, man, you crave a big old greasy hamburger from somewhere because you have a desire to feed that flesh because this is what you've had to die to for so long. Ever how long the fast was the Lord led you on? This is what you've had to, to reject your flesh of. And it's all of a sudden, have you ever noticed every time, I love chocolate, I love sweets. That's my, my bowl of cereal at night before I go to bed or a bowl of ice cream. And guess what? It never failed. If I'm ever fasting, it's like I walk into the pantry and it's like everything in there has a neon light on it that I crave. I am so sensitive to what's gonna satisfy my flesh. And so I know to leave it. I know to run from it. And so what we see here is that Jesus, obviously coming out of a 40-day fast, he's fully man. He wants something to eat. And the enemy says, look, you've got the ability. You can turn that rock into bread and man, your flesh will be pleased. So we see that he's luring him with the lust of the flesh. Then look at verses five and six. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. You know, I know Brian well enough to know that when you want to challenge me with something, I will accept. Now, the older you get, you realize there's some of those things you have to turn from. But I remember that all the time when somebody would say, man, if you're as good as you think you are, I bet you can't do this. Well, guess what I would always try to do? I'm going to do what you said I couldn't do. Because I was trying to feed my own ego. I was trying to walk in this pride of life. And so at this moment, Jesus had the opportunity to show how powerful he was. He had the opportunity to show how superior he was. And all the enemy was wanting him to do was to give in to that. He was tempting him with the opportunity to show, to prove how unbelievable he was. But he knew that he would be taking the commandment from the enemy. So then we look at verse eight and nine and we see the last temptation. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed, showed him with your eyes. He showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. So you see the enemy has shown Jesus. He said, look, here's all the beauties of this world and they're all yours if you'll just listen to me. They're all yours if you'll just listen and do what I tell you to do. And so Jesus has just walked through the very same temptation that you face every day, 
that I face every day. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how did Jesus do it? Now, I know some of you, you're going, duh, he was Jesus. He was the son of God. He was perfect. That's how he did it. But remember, we understand that he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And we just read in the first verse that it said that the devil tempted him. Meaning that there was something in Jesus that he had a fleshly side that tempted, that he was tempted to use, that he was tempted to give into. And so therefore Jesus had to fight off those temptations that you and I fight off. But we all know that he stood victorious in the end. We all know that he was the spotless lamb of God. We all know that there was no blemish. There was no sin. He never gave in and surrendered to the temptations that you and I give in. So how did he do it? How did he do it? Well, it said it in verse one. He just came out of a 40-day fast. The purpose of a fast It's got many different layers. But the purpose of a fast is to, number one, fight against our flesh. Because our flesh has desires. Our flesh wants to do things. But when we fast, we say, you know what? Right now in this season, I'm dying to every thought my flesh has, and I'm going to seek the Lord. And so here's the Son of God. Here's the Lamb of God. Knowing what's to come, knowing that he's about to be tempted by Satan, knowing that he's about to be taken into the wilderness and had all the lures thrown at him, wanting him to bite. And so what does he do? He goes and he seeks the time with his father. He fasted for 40 days, meaning that he died to his flesh. But he also was seeking the presence of God. He was also seeking the presence of his father. You see, in that moment, after fasting for 40 days, Jesus was just like you and I. He was physically worn out. He was physically worn out. He had had nothing to eat. He had had nothing to drink. And so while he was physically worn out, his spirit had never been stronger. His spirit had never been stronger because he had prepared for the fight. He had prepared for the war. And I don't know about you, but if the son of God has to spend time with his father to prepare to attack this world, to prepare to stand against this world, if the son of God had to do that, who are we to think we don't? And so while he took 40 days to spend time with his father, I don't know about you, but I know about me that there's days in my life where 40 days is the farthest thing from my mind because I'm doing very good to find 40 seconds to spend with the Father. And then we wonder why in the world we give in to the temptations of the enemy. 
Why in the world do I continue to fall flat on my face when the enemy lures me, when he tempts me to love the things of this world? How do I continue to fall right back into this trap? It all goes back to how much time did you prepare to fight? How much time did you spend like Jesus seeking the presence of your father, spending time in the word, spending time in worship? Because your flesh, if you think you can overcome the enemy in your flesh, you've got a long road ahead. I'm telling you right now, you cannot fight the temptations of your flesh in your own strength. Jesus couldn't even do it. This is why he spent time with his father, was so that he could be spiritually prepared for this fight, for this war. But you know, it should be no surprise that the enemy knows when to attack. He knew to attack Jesus when he was physically worn out. He knew to attack Jesus when he was emotionally worn out. He knew to attack him then, so guess what? If he knew when to attack the Son of God, guess what he also knows? He knows when to attack you. He knows when to attack you when you're emotionally worn out, when you're physically worn out, when your flesh is just ready to give up and throw in the towel. He knows when to attack. And look, over this last six months of chaos, we've all dealt with this. We've all dealt with being physically worn out. We've all dealt with being emotionally worn out. You know, I shared just a couple of weeks ago, there's a reason that the suicide hotline in the last six months has increased by 650%. Because guess what? The enemy knows we're tired. The enemy knows we're weak. And so maybe there's those that If you go back eight months ago, you go back nine months ago, you had laid an addiction down. You had laid some terrible habits down. But over the last six months, you've just felt like giving up and now all of a sudden the, the enemy brings those lures in front of you, if you would. And the enemy, you know what he says to you? worn out. You deserve it. You deserve it. You know, that's exactly what he, he even told Jesus. He says, look, in verse nine, he said, and if you, and he said this, he said, all these things I'll give to you. How many things does the enemy promise us when we're weak? He promises us if you'll just give in, you'll feel better. It'll go away. You owe this to yourself. But what the enemy never does is he never tells us how the story turns out. He never tells us how it ends. Because I think we can all agree that if we saw how a lot of situations ended, that we would have never gone there to begin with. So he never tells us the truth because he's a liar and he's a deceiver. 
But he tells us if you give in to this world, it'll feel good for a little while. But I want you to turn back to chapter two, verse 17. I'm so thankful for the truth of God's word that it always combats the lies of the enemy. Because if you remember the way that Jesus responded in all three situations, it didn't say that he manned up. He didn't say that he bucked up, that he said, come on devil, I got you. No, what did it say? He started out every rebuttal with the temptations of the enemy. He said, it is written. He fought with the sword of the spirit. He taught, he fought with the word of God because you see in that preparation time, not only did he pray, not only did he worship, but he spent time in the scripture. He spent time in the word of God because we read about it in Ephesians 6, the full armor of God. And we love to talk about all the pieces of armor that we as believers are supposed to put on. Every one of those pieces of armor are for defense. It's like a football helmet. It's like shoulder pads. It's like thigh pads. Everything is to protect ourselves. But in Ephesians 6, verse 17, we see that there's one offensive weapon that a follower of Christ has. And that is this sword. This is what we fight with. Same way Jesus did. It is written. It is written. Because you know, there's times that when we forget all of this and we fall into the temptations of the enemy, we, we buy into his lies that this is gonna feel good, that's gonna make it go away, that this is gonna fix things. Verse 17 tells us the truth. John writes this, the world the world, the context that we talked about earlier, the world, anything that opposes God, anything that stands against the truth of God's word, anything, it is all passing away and also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. John says, look, it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks. It doesn't matter the picture that the enemy paints. Here's what I want you to hear. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. It may start out different. It may start out entertaining. It may start out fun. It may start out joyous, but I can promise you this is if not of the Lord, it will not end well. It will not end well. So we have to ask ourselves the question, why in the world would we give in to something that we know won't last? Why would we give in to something that won't last? When we see the truth of God's word of what will last. Look at verse 25 of chapter two. I love the simplicity of how he starts out this one last section. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life, eternal life. That is what will last. 
This is what will last when all the world is faded, when all the world has come and gone. We know that if we have faith in Jesus Christ, that our eternity will last. Our hope will last. Verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it is taught you, you abide with him. John is warning us, he says, look, you're gonna have a lot of people out there who are lying to you. The enemy is coming to seek, to kill, steal, and destroy. That is what the enemy wants. And in that process, he's gonna to lie to you the whole way. He's gonna say, well, if you'll just give into this, it'll fix your problems. If you'll just give into this, it'll satisfy that addiction. If you'll just give into that, all of your problems will go away. And John is saying, look, I'm warning you against those teachers. He's saying, you don't need them. You don't need the teachers of this world. All you need to do is abide in him, abide with him. And if you remember, that means to walk with Jesus. That means to walk with Christ, to walk in fellowship with him. And he says, I'm warning you, don't listen to the lies, but just walk with the Lord. And then verse 28, it says, now little children, he puts the book in back on it. He says, look, all believers abide in him so that when he appears, we have, may have confidence and not shrink away from him in the shame at his comings. Man, I don't know about you, but I know with my kids, you ever walked in and caught them doing something they weren't supposed to be doing? Happens in the whole house every day. And it always, especially Deacon, and this really has nothing to do with it, but I walk in and she'll be doing something. And she always says, I love you, Daddy. <laughs> yeah, you better be glad he does. But that's exactly what John is saying. He says, look, I want you to walk with Christ so when he returns, you have confidence that you don't have to shy away at his return. I want you to walk with Christ so when, the East, when it opens, when Jesus, when that last trumpet sounds, I want you to have the confidence. I don't want you to sit around going, oh no, I got caught. I got busted walking in sin. I shouldn't have been doing this. I got caught with my hand in the cookie jar because we want to have confidence in his return when he returns, that we can look at him with confidence and welcome. But you know, here's the beauty of the gospel. Even if, even if as a follower of Christ, you are in sin, you've given in to the lure of the enemy and you're in the act of in his return, Guess what? They don't change a thing. He looks at the father and he says, no, that one's paid for. That one's paid for. 
Man, how much freedom is in that? When we understand a love like that, we should all respond by walking with him. And so I gotta ask you the question this morning, several of them. And you know, I know this is a very, very hard message or a place to land, but it just kind of comes to a sudden stop. But maybe you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're like the young man that surrendered his heart and his life to Christ today that the beauty in that is, guess what? He walked out of here forever changed. Now he has the confidence when Christ returns. Because you do get that, right? We preached on that several weeks ago. When he returns. It's not like college football that we're all just praying that it does. Because we read the guarantee from the promise of God's word that he is returning. And people, we need to open up our eyes. Look around us. It's close. It's close. But the only way that we can have confidence when he does return is if we've trusted him as our Lord and Savior. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ or maybe God's been dealing with you over the last several weeks. Don't leave here today without nailing that down. But maybe to the rest of us, Maybe in this last six months of, of isolation or chaos or quarantine, there's 8,000 words for what's happened the last six months now. But maybe you have felt the enemy attack you like you've never attacked you before. You've gone back to your old ways. You've taken every bait that he has dangled in front of you. Maybe you've fallen back into addiction Maybe you've been unfaithful to a spouse. And unfaithful to a spouse doesn't only mean just physical. Maybe there's been some idle time that you have dealt with because I've always said it, an idle mind is the enemy's playground. And so maybe whatever you've picked back up this morning, I'm begging you, leave it at the altar. He's already died for it. Leave it where it's at. While the enemy's told you it's gonna be fun, it's gonna be enjoyable, he's not told you how it ends. He's not told you that your marriage will fall apart. He's not told you that you'll die to that addiction. And it breaks my heart that the enemy continues to have his way. Church, whatever you've picked back up today, remember, you've got an advocate, Jesus, who said, it's already paid for. It's already paid for. So I know this was an awkward ending. I really don't know how to end it. But I do know that some of you in this room, myself included, that we need to do business with God. 
that we need to fall on our face in repentance because we've all given in to the lie of things that don't line up with this word. No exceptions. We've got to stand on the truth of God's word. Don't take bits and pieces of it that justify how you can live and what you can do. You either believe all of it or you believe none of it. And so this morning, I want to encourage you just to do business with the Lord. If you need to surrender your life to Christ today, man, I want to celebrate with you. But as a church today, church, we've got to learn how to fight the enemy's attacks. We've got to spend time in his word. We've got to spend time in worship. We've got to spend time with him. Are you prepared for fighting? Are you prepared for the war? Stand to your feet if you would this morning and just respond the way that God would have you respond.